All right. Today, we are continuing on in our series that is titled Big Church. And if you're hearing this for the first time, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. When we talk about big church, it's not like three steps to becoming a big church. It's not about like wanting to crowd people in here. It's about the, the concept of what the church is in Scripture is a very big idea. That, that it's bigger than usually what we think of. And just to kind of dial back through our previous weeks real quick, the first week we looked at the term church in Scripture. Because the English word church is, is derived out of a German word that means Lord's house. And it's not really an accurate picture of what the New Testament meant when it said church. Because the word, the Greek word, meant gathering of people. And so when we see in scripture that God's plan to impact and change the world was the church, we often think of buildings that we know when we should be thinking of faces that we know. That Christ intended that the gathering of people who trusted in his name, that was his plan to change the world. And then the second week we looked at that there's this instruction that was given to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the ends of the world, but to not do anything until Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to his followers. And then there was this amazing moment, like if you've ever been in one of those times where praise and worship and prayer was just intense and it was this spiritual moment, it's like the followers of Christ, they had that moment. And they were upstairs in a room, and it was amazing. They knew each other well. They loved each other, and the Spirit of God moved. But he didn't move just so that they would have a great spiritual experience. He moved in their life so that they would go downstairs, out into the street, and start preaching. And thousands of people came to Christ on opening day of the church. It was a large opening. 3,000 people baptized. Lives changed. It was amazing. And then from there, as they continued to preach, like we talked about last week, there began to be some opposition, and Peter, Peter was known for preaching with this boldness. Uh, you could also replace the word uh, boldness with stupidity sometimes, if you're like looking at it saying, okay, telling people that they're responsible for Christ's death on the cross is not the safest choice to make. That was just a common theme in his preaching. This Jesus whom you crucified. And it's because he was talking to the high priests and the leaders of the temple who were responsible for it. And, and so we, we saw that in his preaching, and then towards the end of the passage we looked at last week, all of the disciples, the apostles, were rounded up together, and, and they were put in jail, and then they were flogged. They were beaten severely with whips that, that left scars on them, scars that would have been associated with criminals. It would have been labels that they, they carried with them, that when people saw it, they would have questioned their integrity and who they were. But the disciples had this interesting reaction that they counted it a blessing to be worthy to suffer for the name. And so we, we see these experiences and that, that challenge to be bold in our faith. Um, and a, as we look into this next portion of Scripture, we see a really bold gesture happen. And don't judge me on this. I'm going to tell a story. And I'm not proud of it. I'm just, I'm being honest in church. This happened, so I'm going to talk about it. Uh, I, I was out walking my dog at the end of my street, and there's a cul-de-sac, and there's really high grass. And while we were walking, it was nighttime, and I was relaxed. And an animal began to emerge and charge towards us from the bushes. It was a raccoon. Now, I understand I'm a lot bigger than a raccoon, but if you've ever had one sneak up on you, you know that, like, you react poorly to this. And for a brief moment, I had to figure out, how am I going to defend myself against this raccoon? And the first thing, I'm not saying this is good, I'm not saying this is good, but the first thing that came through my mind was, I could take my dog like a medieval mace and swing him around and hit the raccoon and get away, and that, that's not right, and I would never do that, and I didn't do that, okay, that did not happen, 
thankfully, like, as I started to freak out, the raccoon turned and, and ran the opposite way, which I was very happy that I didn't have to, you know, throw hands with a raccoon. Like, I didn't want that fight right then. But there was this moment of, like, I do not love my dog enough to, like, protect my dog. If it was one of my children, yes, I would have gotten a fist fight with a raccoon. If it was my wife, I wouldn't have hesitated to step in between her and the raccoon. But when it was the dog, like, there was no grand gesture there, all right? It's just that I'm sorry. I, and I know there's other people who love their dog a lot more than I love my dog, like people who wouldn't even leave their house during the hurricane because they love their dog so much. And, and, and there's these moments, and they usually happen in an instant, where we have to decide, like, is my life worth, like, is my love for this other person or this thing worth my life suffering? And, and that decision's made in a moment, but that, that grand gesture moment, that, that, that big time I'd say that that decision is usually always in line with the way that someone's been living their life. Like, my dog, he's, he's on the last of my priority scale. I got four kids. Like, I ain't got time for my dog. Like, uh, keeping them fed and alive, that's enough. And I love them, and I pour into them. And I, without a hesitation, would do anything for them. And, and this is true with family. This is true with relationships. This is true with pets. This is true with your faith as well. And what we're going to see in, in Acts 7, 8, and 9 is what we're looking at today. I'm going to just quickly go through Stephen's story as we're really focusing on the Apostle Paul, or as he's known, Saul of Tarsus. But the beginning of his story starts with Stephen's life. Stephen was the first martyr for the Christian faith after Christ's death and resurrection. And and Stephen, he was known, as the way the scripture describes him, as a man who God did miraculous things through his life. God did powerful, miracle works through Stephen's life. And, and he was someone who'd go into the temple and he would debate and they wouldn't be able to answer what he had to say. Like you'd see him and he's a leader. But listen to the position that Stephen took within the church. The apostles were, were getting some grief from other people in the church because they were saying, hey, the Jewish, te- the Jewish widows, they're receiving more food and care and affection that, than the Greek ones are. And so the apostles said, you know what, it's not our job to wait on tables. We need to be committed towards preaching and prayer. We need to assign some able men to take care of these ministries. And Stephen was one of the names. Stephen was like, I will go care for the widows. I mean, yes, God has worked miracles through me. Yes, I've been out and I've done public speaking and debate, and it's been awesome, and I've seen God use it, but I'll go wait on the tables. Like, Stephen had this humble heart that that tells us that just day after day, he was one of those people who was following Christ with the way that he lived his life. And then he got into this debate within a synagogue and the tensions really escalated. Now remember, just last week we were looking at the, the apostles were all flogged and let go. But they were told, you know, they said, well, let's not kill them. Let's just severely punish them. Warn them not to preach in the name anymore. Send them out. And now we see the, the, this escalation that then happens in, in Stephen's life. And I'm going to tell you, Stephen must have been listening to some of Peter's preaching. Because a, as we see uh, him sharing with them, he he pulls from that line, you know, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels, and then the Jewish leaders were infuriated at Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists at him in rage, and and then they, they, they put him to death. And one of the people who was there in the crowd that day, who was actually, like, while everyone's going and doing the physical work of putting Stephen to death, the person who's watching over their stuff was Saul. And Saul is a huge figure within the church. But before we really get to that, just even as I was looking at some of these pieces of Stephen's life, I I just felt like God was kind of talking to me about this within myself, that we see Stephen's grand gesture of faith. 
and, and we say, that's amazing, that, that, that's miraculous, and, you know, I, I hope that I would make a decision like that. But I want to remind us that we often neglect the things that we think, you know, I would give my life for this. I, w- I would give my life for my wife. I would do anything for her. And she's sitting next to us saying, but you haven't done anything for me lately. Like, and, and we say, I'd give my life for my faith, but I haven't picked up my Bible for I don't even know how long. And, and there's so many things that are so critical to our heart that we say, you know, if it came down to it, I hope I would just give my life for this. It's weird how those th- often become things that we neglect. And so just even as we begin to wade into some of these topics of what the church is supposed to look like and what our life should, should look like, one of the first things that I want to encourage you on is I just want, like, this week, I will not neglect the things I would give my life to protect. I, I, if I, for my faith, say that I hope I would lay my life down, then, man, I hope that I'm picking my Bible up. If I say my marriage is so critically important to who I am as a person, I hope this week that I am investing in my marriage. If my kids are critical to who I am, then I hope this week I am pouring into my kids. Because if we're saying we're just going to live for the grand gesture, we're, first of all, I don't think we'd actually make it when that came, but then we're living for things that we know doesn't matter. And as we look at the life of Stephen, we know that he was, he was pouring his life out to live his faith every day, not just on that one special day. And, and so... We're, we're going to pick up the, the main meat uh, of the passage today in Acts 8 and in Acts 9, and we're going to start at verses 1 through 3 uh, as we study this today. And it says in verse 1, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day. Now, I, ju- I just have to pause real quick there, because as we talked about the Jews, they weren't supposed to be able to put anyone to death. Uh, that, that was something that they had to bring before the Romans. They, they didn't have that authority in this time, and they were putting themselves at risk to do something like this. And so just even as they did this, there would have been a moment of pause of saying, is there going to be Roman retribution for what we just did? Are, are, are we going to get in trouble? Are they going to send a, you know, a group uh, of soldiers to come and wipe some of us out or imprison some, some of us? And so there would have been a pause. And, and then when nothing happened after they killed Stephen, and Saul, you know, says was one of the witnesses, he agreed with it, and then this great wave of persecution began because they realized the Romans, they're not going to do anything about this, they're going to let us go, let's go after the, these followers of the way, let's go after these Christians, as they were not yet called. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all of the believers, except for the apostles, were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. I also have to just hit pause because there's some interesting fo- footnotes on this. Before we studied and we looked at that the calling of Jesus was wait for the Holy Spirit to come to you. Once he does, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit came, but the apostles and and the disciples, they were all just staying there. And it's just interesting and a little bit poetic that at the beginning of Saul's life, even before he was a Christian, God began to use him to accomplish the purpose that he wanted to see happen in the church even before Saul was a Christian. Because of the persecution, they started going out. And they started leaving. And some devout men, they came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Saul was completely committed. He became passionate about this cause of stamping out the early church. He, he was someone who was brought up, he was a Pharisee. He believed in the resurrection. He, he believed in the laws and the traditions of the Jewish culture. And he was fully vested, and he was educated by the best. 
And, and so he was an intelligent man, and we also learn later that he was a Roman citizen, so he was probably from a wealthy upbringing. He was someone who was a leader amongst leaders, and he was putting his full effort into stomping out the Christians. And, and so he begins going after it, and then his story picks back up in chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, where, which we're going to jump to. And then it says, Meanwhile Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their, their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. Remember when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? This was one of the early terms for the early church, followers of the way. Arrest any followers of the way he found there, and he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now this is a really interesting, just small word in this text that we often have just glazed over and didn't really think about the significance of, but as we're studying what the church is supposed to be in Scripture, it's worth noting what, Je what Jesus said as he was speaking to Saul in this passage. D did you catch it? Because the way that we think about the church, it being a building, it being an organization, we would expect Jesus to say, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting it? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting that, that, that place or that thing? But what did Jesus say? He said, why are you persecuting me? But this is so in line with what Scripture teaches about what, what the body of Christ is. That's the church, the body of Christ that Jesus identifies as, as this gathering. That, that he sees the way that we act towards the church or the way that other people act towards the church as the way that we act towards him. That when we give, that when we invest, that when we serve, that when we love, he receives that as love and giving towards him. And, and I want to say, and this is the second point, but God sees your actions towards the church as your actions towards him. And, and this, is, this is such a huge thing to understand. Because our perception of the church, it, it's gotten jaded and probably partially because we've gotten hurt at other churches. And we've read about other people getting hurt at other churches. And I, I always want to be clear, and please hear this through just the most compassionate way. Just hear this from my heart. I understand so many of us have gotten hurt by a church in a real way. And I'm not belittling that at all. But you will not hear me criticize another church. Not even a church that's hurt me personally. I love Cape Christian Fellowship. I love Cross Point. I, I love Christian Life Fellowship. Uh, I love the Baptists in town, the Presbyterians in town, the Methodists in town. I love them because they are Christ's bride. They may not do things the way that I would do things, and that's okay, but here's the thing. Like, you would never win any points with me as a person if you criticized my wife. First of all, because she's smarter, kinder, and just better than you. Like, I, I even have to, like, defend her against imaginary criticisms because she's my wife and I love her and part of my identity is found in her. And that's what scripture teaches, that the two become one flesh and, and we are together as a person. And you can't criticize her without me getting riled up about it. It's the same way, like you can't go to the mom 
uh, of some kids and start insulting their kids and expect to buddy-buddy with that mom. Like, you're just going to get the bear claw across the face, right? Like, you don't mess with the mama bear's cubs and expect her to be okay with it. In the same way, I even tell you, if you're in a situation where, uh, of divorce and you have kids, don't criticize your child's other parent to them because there's part of their identity that is intertwined with who they are and they will hear those insults and comments uh, of dictation of what their future will be because that, their identity is meshed together. In the same way, Christ's identity is meshed in with the church. And even when she's wrong and broken and bruising other people, his identity is in the church. And it will not be perfect. And, and it should not, because we should be continuing to bring in broken people who are changed by the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. And it's changing their life, and they have things that they're working through. And that's okay, because the church is the place where they're supposed to work through it. Amen? Amen, Amen that's right. And, and so we don't criticize. We, we might say, you know what, that, that's not my home church anymore, because something that ha has happened there. But we don't beat down the bride of Christ. Because when we attack any church, we're attacking Christ. A as Saul was going out and he was persecuting the church, Jesus is saying, why are you persecuting me? My people are me. My body is protected and loved. A and then beginning to see Sa Saul's reaction to this, it, it, it's amazing. Well, first there's just this sign, this miracle that happened. It is, there's the light and there's the voice. And verse 6 says, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. In verse 7, the, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. He was so shooken up by what happened and, and it's I don't think it's just the sign I think it's the realization I've been persecuting the church and putting people towards the this line of death and imprisonment and, and this is th this Messiah this Jesus he is who people said he was and his whole worldview was shook up in this moment which I believe many of us have walked through that time where it's like when we realize who Jesus really is there's a time of mourning over what you've done and and, and you just evaluate and, and he's there, and it's so severe that he doesn't eat or drink for three days. I mean, his heart was broken, and he was praying to God, as we see in the next couple passages. He was talking to God about these things. And, and I believe that he was having what, what he later describes as kind of this death-to-self, life-to-God moment, where, where he realized, like, the way that I've been living, it has to change. The people who respected me, they're not going to respect me anymore. But this is the truth, so I have to live my life by it which is a point that many of us will walk through. In your faith, there will be a point where you realize, if this is true, the way that I live has to change. And, and the way that people look at us when, when they see us as Christians, they're, they're deciding, is what they believe real or not? And one of the ways that, you know, John 13, 35 says that people will know we're Christians or not, this is a common verse, um, you know, it says, and they will know that you are Christians by your complaining, Right? No, um, they will know you that you are Christians by how you are easily offended. This is what Christians do in our culture today, right? We get easily offended when we make an angry Facebook post. No, uh, they, they will know you that you're Christians by your bumper stickers, you know, what you put on your car. That, that's the highest evidence of Christianity. They will know that you're Christians by your political affiliations. 
You know, Christians only vote one way, and if you're not voting that way, then your faith is not strong enough. And, and be careful, because I'm going to go and warn you, this one's not right either, but it's common. They will know that you are Christians by your love. It's not what it says. It's easier. That, that's easier than what it actually says. They will know you are Christians by your love for one another. It's not just a general niceness. People will know that our life has been changed by Christ by the way that we love other people. One of the interesting things that we see throughout Scripture, it, and it's actually counterintuitive to me because I, I, I almost want to say, like, we need to pour all of our love out just to the unchurched. And believe me, Luke 19.10, that's like our heartbeat verse, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. Like, we want to move towards our city, move towards people who are far from God. But Scripture continues to point that we pour our love and our affection and, and the majority of our energy into the church and to other believers, and to people who are trying to grow in their faith. And, and, and that's our calling, that we in this place should have the most loving atmosphere ever. And so when someone is battling with a man, I have lived the wrong way, and, and I, I feel a mess, and I'm trying to figure it out, and I don't even feel like I should eat food or water, this should be a safe place for people to begin to figure out what needs to change in my life. Am I listening to God in the way that he's called me to live? Is my identity being what it's supposed to be? And, and so Paul was there, and, and he's praying, and he's processing, and he won't even take any food or, or water. And then in verse 10, we pick up the passage, and it says, Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again, which is God's way of saying, no, no one else can do this. You're going to go do this. Verse 13, but, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many, many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. Just a heads up, it's okay to tell God what you're thinking, but he already knows those things. Um, verse 15, but the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he will suffer for my namesake. That's a rough new believers class right there, how much you will suffer for my namesake. But this is pa part of Paul's road, and this is also something that would have been fresh on the heart and mind of Paul anyway, because not only did he know what Christians were suffering, I mean, he was inflicting it. So he knew what he was getting into when he made the decision. He, he knew what this would mean for his life. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. Now, just something about the church that should be just part of, of our normal spiritual walk, that we usually fall in love, we usually make the decision be, to become a Christian in private. Our heart usually turns towards God, and a lot of times it's internal. It doesn't always involve someone else asking us or debating with us or talking with us. A lot of times during a pew, we say, you know what, I am convinced of this, I believe this, and it's a private thing. But we are called by scripture that when we make that decision, that we should be publicly baptized. That, that, that's the normal spiritual progression, and it's throughout scripture. It's part of the Great Commission. And, and 
baptism, it's, it's a public declaration of an inward decision. That, that we believe that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected to give us new life, forgiveness of sins. And that we want to make that statement publicly. And this just small footnote of Saul being baptized, it would have been done in a public place where other Jewish people saw it, and they would have said, what in the world is happening right now? I heard that Saul was coming to round up the Christians, and now the Christians are baptizing him. It, it would have been an awkward moment for, for any of the people who were part of the temple, because they would have seen, this Pharisee of Pharisees is now a believer. And it wasn't until he had that settled that he was even willing to receive food or water. I mean, that's just a neat thing about his character and who he was. But I, I want to tell you, baptism is an important step in your faith. And if fear or embarrassment has been holding you back from taking that step, I want to encourage you to be bold. I mean, we had the joy uh, of baptizing four people that are over the age of 55. I won't say their number, but man, they were up there. A and that, that is a testament to them, and I, that came out really weird. I'm sorry. I love you guys. Um, I know. You, you guys rock. But I, I say that because over the age of 50, it is incredibly rare that someone will have the humility and the courage to step out and get baptized. So when it happens, I was telling them, like, man, you are a unicorn. Like, people talk about you, but they've never seen you. Like, this doesn't happen. And so I'm so impressed in your devotion and love for Christ to take that step forward. And I want you to, no matter what, no matter what your age is, that, that's always my reaction. And that's our reaction as a church, man. We are so excited that you would take a step forward in your faith to be baptized. There's no question of, man, why didn't you do this when you were 16? Like, no, no one's thinking that. We're so excited for anyone who takes a step forward in their faith in, uh, in baptism. And, and so we as a church, we want to be a church that, that celebrates baptism. And continuing down into the passage, it says that Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching. Immediately he began preaching. Immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is indeed the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation amongst Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked, and didn't he come here to arrest and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus, they couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Because ever since the beginning, God began painting pictures of what the Messiah would be in Scripture. So that way his people would have no doubt that this is the Messiah, the, the Son of God that was sent. And Saul started off, and he immediately was sharing what, what he knew about God. And granted, he had some education background, and, and that was helpful. And, and you might say, you know, Paul, in my spiritual life, I want to share about God, but I'm a little bit afraid because when I start trying to debate with people, my palms get sweaty and I get nauseous and like it just doesn't work for me. I, 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 can't, I can't out argue people. In our day and age, uh, when, when it comes to reasoning and talking with people, one of the most effective encouragement to someone to check out God and see who he is isn't for you to rip their, their beliefs apart and, and to criticize or debate. It's actually just a simple sentence. I've been part of a church, and it's been really good for me. It's been really good for my kids. It's been really good for my marriage. Someone in our church, they posted, uh, because of one of the things that I said about investing in our marriage, he said, my pastor challenged us to invest in our marriage, so I'm taking my wife out for a date this week. And I was like, I won't be surprised if 10 of, 
his friends ask what church they're going to because those wives are like, I need to get my husband listening to that guy. <laughs> because the fact is, they want something that, that is going to help them take a step forward in their faith and their life and their family. And just the simple testimony to someone that I've been part of a church and it's been good for our family, that's usually all that someone needs as an excuse to come to church with you and check it out to see if God does actually have something for them. You don't have to be able to out-argue them. And in fact, I'd say it's not even useful to try to, you know, have an argument over Facebook or Twitter. Those things aren't constructive. But when you tell people and say, this is what God's done in my life, that's irrefutable. They just, they, they can't argue with what you've seen God do. And I know that God, he wants to do big things. God wants to do huge things in our marriages, in our families, and in our city. He wants to do th huge things in this church. He wants to do hu thi huge things in, in Christian Life Fellowship's church. He wants to do huge things in Cape Christian Church. I believe he wants to work through all of the churches in the city because, as I just saw, they're expecting 200,000 people to be part of Cape Coral by next year. There are literally thousands of families in the city who are far away from God and desperately need him. Hallelujah. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to the truth. It helps when someone else knows this isn't just what the pastor is thinking and believing, but we understand the importance of carrying this message to our city. And, and so we have to figure out, how is that going to look for me? Paul just started immediately. Paul immediately just started sharing, and he didn't even know what he was doing. He didn't know the rules of the things that the other apostles were doing. And in fact, it said later, he got a little worried and anxious about it, and he went back to check in with the disciples. Is what I'm preaching, is this right? Because I think this is right. This is what God told me. And they said, yeah, keep it going. He immediately started. We have to figure out how, God, do you want to work in my life right now? And we have to start, this D.L. Moody quote, um, I was reminded of it while I was prepping this, and this is the third and, and final point. Band, if you guys want to start making your way back up on the stage, that would be awesome. Uh, if God is your partner, make big plans. This is so simple and so elementary, but man, our lives, it, it, it seems like this just isn't part of the way that we live. We expect, okay, this week I'm going to get up and I'm going to go through my, my routine and I'm going to check in and out of work and I don't really expect to see God grab a hold of anyone's heart or life because of what I did this week. And that is not what God wants for you. You have a spiritual calling. You have a spiritual authority and responsibility as a follower of Christ. And he wants you to interrupt and impact other people with this message of love. And we as individuals, we need to figure out how to live this out, and we as a church, as a collective group, we need to figure out how to push out into our city. And so we're going to make big plans, and I, I, I kind of began talking about this a little bit, that October, the first Sunday of October, is our one-year anniversary as a church. Praise God. I'm, I'm so excited. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have an awesome church service. We're going to have an awesome recap video of the first year. We're going to have birthday cake. But it, it's, it's my heartbeat that our church is always here for our city more than it's just here for us. Like, we should love each other beyond anything else, but man, our heartbeat is for our city. Because they're lost and, and God wants them found. And so we're planning a party, and I figured, hey, it's best to plan a party for the kids because they, they still know how to party. They haven't gotten ruined on that yet. And so this is what's going to happen. We're going to have a great service, and it'll be powerful. Invite your friends to it but we're going to strategically move after young families during the month of October. And so the very first week of October, we're going to have a Christian illus illusionist as part of the kids' ministry, and he's going to put on an awesome show for the kids. A and 
and we're going to put invites out through the schools, and, and that's going to be great. We're going to throw a party for the kids week one, but not just our anniversary is a bigger deal than just one Sunday. So week one, we have a magic show for the kids. Week two, we have an animal show that's going to come and be part of their lesson, and as you come into church, the second Sunday of October, you're going to see a giant tortoise. Don't be freaked out. He's supposed to be there. You can take a selfie with him. It's going to be great. And, and the kids are going to have a great week the second week. The third week, we're going to have inflatables for the kids. And the fourth week, we're going to put on a trunk or treat as a church. All right? And we're going to have hundreds of kids here. Is that exciting? Yeah. All right. I just laid a trap for you. I'm sorry. Is it exciting enough to volunteer in kids' ministry for a couple weeks? Of course. Awesome. Because that's what we need. If we want to reach people, we need workers in the field. And I can guarantee you, the first Sunday of October, our kids' ministry is going to be overflowing. And we need to equally be overflowing with volunteers. And it's not because we want a large number to say we had this many people at church. It's because we want a large number of hearts and families to hear this gospel that has so changed our lives. And when we look at the Apostle Paul and what he meant for the church, this is really, I think, one of the largest testimonies. He continually clarified what the gospel is. Because there's confusion. Is it all these Jewish traditions? Is it these Jewish rules? And he, he one of the most simple statements he made in Romans 10, 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That moment of belief, I remember how it began this process of change in everything of who I was as a person. And if you're sitting here today, you probably have that same story. God, you have done so much in my life. Let's do whatever we have to do as a church and as individuals to help other people experience that amazing moment with God. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for this, this gathering of people who are passionate about what you have done in their life. And God, would you continue to stir our hearts for people who are far away from you, people who, <laughs> people who are afraid the doors of the church will come down if they walk through them, the people who feel like they're too broken, their marriage is too messed up. Would you draw those people in here and would you just show them your love, your kindness, and the healing that is only found in the name of Jesus Christ? And whatever it is, if it's a children's event or if it's an invitation or... or an invitation to lunch after church, whatever it is that brings them in, God, would you meet them right where they are? And would you begin to just fill their life with your love? And God, may we be the carriers of that message. Would you help other people to know that we are Christians because of the way that we love one another? And we thank you that we get to be part of this big idea that you call the church. In Jesus' name.